So in Istanbul, we are seeing maybe the opening signs of a breakthrough here after more than a month of war. That is Shane Harris. He covers intelligence and national security for The Post. Negotiators from Ukraine and from Russia have been meeting. They've had days of talks. And as we are speaking on Tuesday, Moscow has said that it is willing to, in its words, drastically reduce military activity near Kyiv, the capital, in order to, quote, increase mutual trust and create the necessary conditions for further negotiations, which sounds promising. Members of the Ukrainian delegation have said that they are proposing that countries, including Israel, Turkey, and France, would guarantee Ukraine's security in the future, and in exchange, Kyiv would pledge neutrality and not to host foreign military bases or forces on its territory. So there might be a way out of this. But the balance of world power is not going to go back to the way it was before. And that is the question underlying these negotiations. What will that balance of power look like? From the newsroom of The Washington Post, this is Post Reports. I'm Martine Powers. It's Tuesday, March 29th. For the first time in more than a month of war, it seems like there could be movement toward peace in Ukraine. So today, we're talking with Shane about what's being proposed in these negotiations and all the complications that could still mess this up. Talks have been happening since nearly the beginning of the conflict. Some of them have taken place in Belarus, neighboring in Ukraine. They have not really, to date, produced much in the way of concrete steps that either side is willing to take. Ukraine has its demands, Russia has its demands. But it seems like the two sides are arriving at a point where it seems like a settlement is actually in the best interest of Ukraine and of Russia. And what is it exactly that the Ukrainian delegates are pledging, and or, or what are they putting on the table? What they have said, so far from what we know, and this is still developing, is that they proposed that Israel and Turkey and France would be among a number of countries that, as they put it, would guarantee Ukraine's security in the future. Not exactly clear what that would mean. Do they expect them to come to the aid of Ukraine? But that in exchange, what Kyiv would do is pledge neutrality and not to host any foreign military bases or foreign forces on its territory. And this has been important for the Russians. They are pressing Ukraine to say that they will not seek membership in NATO, that they will remain neutral in future conflicts and in future disputes. There's been some desire on the part of the Russians to demilitarize Ukraine, which may be a step too far. But importantly, if the Ukrainians are saying that they're willing to exchange neutrality for some kind of security guarantees, that's a signal from Kyiv that they are willing to perhaps entertain some of the things that Russia has been demanding. And how big of a loss is that for Ukraine, considering that they came into this really advocating to be part of NATO and wanting to essentially not be neutral here, but to feel like Western Europe was with them? What is it like for Ukraine at this moment to basically say, okay, we're willing to give up those prospects? I think it's a significant concession, but it's not necessarily one that's terribly surprising at this point. It's something that President Zelensky has signaled in recent weeks that he might be open to. A lot of Ukrainians have pointed out that 
seeking membership is something that is enshrined in the country's constitution, pointing out that basically officials are obligated to try and seek membership in NATO. But Zelensky has said in so many words that he understands now that the door is effectively closed, at least in the Mm -hmm. near term, to Ukraine having NATO membership. This is not a position that he's really in a position to argue much over. I mean, for as much as Ukraine has been scoring important victories in the war with Russia, it's even taken back some cities that Russia had held temporarily. Russia has a larger military, and it has not signaled that it's willing to stop absent some concessions. So I think that while this is a big deal, if Ukraine were to say, okay, NATO membership is off the table, it's something that I think a lot of people have been anticipating and that even President Zelensky has been priming his people for. Hmm. But then at the same time, part of this proposal is this idea that Israel, Turkey, and France would guarantee Ukraine's security in the future. And I know that these negotiations are are still pretty early on, or we're still trying to understand what that means. But like, what does that mean? Are they going to create this other like mini NATO with these three countries? And are these three countries on board to be providing, I guess, personal defense for Ukraine? Well, generally, when countries talk about security guarantees, they mean something has to back it up. So we might infer from the situation that Ukraine is in right now, yes, it might expect those countries to come to its aid if Russia were to invade again or to attack or threaten Ukraine. Um, It's not clear to me exactly how they would intend to do that. And, you know, are the French really willing to essentially, you know, put their own forces on the line to go fight Russia in the future. Remember, some of these are NATO countries as well that we're talking about in here with in the case of France and Turkey. So if they were drawn into conflict with Russia, would that trigger the mutual defense clause of NATO? So there's some important things to be ironed out here. But presumably, if Ukraine is serious about this and wants guarantees, they're going to be more than paper guarantees. You know, there have been things like assurances that Ukraine has been given before that European countries would come to its aid if Russia were to invade. That's not the same thing as entering into an actual defense agreement. So we'll see what is really meant by this, but it sounds like Ukraine wants something concrete in the way of defense. Hmm. I want to talk a little bit more about Russia's perspective in all of this. And what what are they promising in the future and what have they promised to do now? Well, they really haven't promised to do much in terms of Ukraine's demands. I mean, they've been pretty firm on NATO. Russia has wanted to see the territory annexed in Crimea already and then these territories in the east, I think, brought back into the fold. But what we've really seen here is that Russia is losing its ability to negotiate because the offensive is not going as they planned. And do you think that they're actually just scared that they're going to lose and that that puts Ukraine in a more advantageous negotiating position? I don't know that Russia is scared it's going to lose in the sense that it would be completely driven out of Ukraine empty-handed. I think there is good reason to think that Vladimir Putin and his advisors are scared that they will incur extraordinary losses if they Mm. continue fighting in Ukraine. There have been estimates of Russian troop deaths ranging, and it's a big range, but from seven to 15,000. That is an absolutely astonishing number of forces for them to lose in such a short period of time. This is an incredibly costly war. The country is economically isolated. The ruble has devalued tremendously. You know, nearly half a trillion dollars in Russia's foreign assets have been frozen in foreign banks. It's going terribly for Russia. 
And I think that Putin can see that. He knows that by now. The country is not firmly in his hands as he expected it might be within days of the invasion in February. So they're not really in a position to make unconditional demands. They have to come to the table. And I think that they understand at this point that it's very likely that Ukraine will keep its capital city. Russia has had no luck taking Kyiv. And if that's the case, then the Zelensky government stays in place, the sanctions stay in place, the military aid to Ukraine stays in place. Russia is running out of options here and has to come to some kind of settlement, I think. After the break, I talked to Shane about what Russia says they might be willing to give up in these negotiations and whether we should believe them. We'll be right back. So, Shane, as part of these negotiations in Istanbul, what is Russia putting on the table? Well, we've seen that the Russians are going to, as they put it, look into, or they're willing (laughs) to look at these proposals. It's not clear to me, because I'm not sure that we've actually seen much in the way of a clear response yet to this, but you could imagine, I think, based on what we've been seeing and really what Russia's military has been doing, that Russia, you could imagine, might agree to some kind of arrangement where it continues to hold Crimea in the south and it exercises some control over these so-called breakaway provinces in the east of Ukraine, which have been so much at the center of the conflict. The Russian military has said in recent days that it is refocusing its offensive to focus on those eastern provinces. Mm. The Russian officials have been trying to make this out that they intended all along just to focus on the eastern provinces, where, of course, there are a large number of Russian speakers and there's a history there of Russian influence and quasi-occupation. That doesn't explain why they tried to invade Kiev and take much of the rest of the country, but no matter, the Russians say, no, no, this was always the plan because we wanted to kind of repel and weaken Ukrainian forces to the west of these provinces, and then eventually we were always going to fall back and focus our attention on the east. Well, if that's what they are doing now, that may be a pretty clear signal that Russia would be willing to just take some control, if not outright control, of those eastern regions and settle for that. The Russians are also saying today, importantly, that they would drastically reduce military activity near Kyiv and another city, Chernyiv. Kyiv basically is off the table, it looks like at this point, for, for Russia. They can't even get their artillery close enough to conduct a sustained bombardment of the city as they have in other places like Mariupol. So if Russia is saying, we're going to focus on the east, we were always going to do that anyway— and will drastically reduce activity near Kyiv, that's a pretty good sign that they're willing to just take the East or at least talk about that. And when you say drastically reduce military activity, that basically means like bomb them less, which also is not the same thing as not bombing them at all. You know, I I wonder what is at stake here for people in cities like Kyiv that Russia is not close to taking but has done such an enormous amount of damage by this bombing campaign. Yeah, I think the definition of drastically reduced remains to be seen, but it could mean that Russia effectively stops attacking Kyiv. I mean, if they reach a ceasefire, the Ukrainians and the Russians, you could see potentially activities stopping elsewhere. But what I think is important to remember is that based on how the war is going right now, the Russians can't 
easily take Kyiv. And there are some analysts I've talked to and think they can't take Kyiv at all. They feel very confident that that will stay in the hands of the Zelensky government. So Russia may be just sort of acknowledging in the way that it does what is plain to see here, which is that they could try to keep up a military campaign, but it's not going to be effective. So drastically reduce maybe their way of saying, look, we're basically willing to lay off as these negotiations continue. But again, we really have to see how this plays out. And already today, Secretary of State Anthony Blinken was speaking during a press conference in Morocco. There is what Russia says, and there is what Russia does. We're focused on the latter. And what Russia is doing is the continued brutalization of Ukraine uh, and its people. So already the U.S. is basically saying, we'll believe it when we see it. Hmm. Because I think that there are several reasons why we should be skeptical of Russia's word here. I mean, there's the question of whether these delegates are actually speaking for President Putin. But then there's also just how these last few weeks have unfolded, where we've seen so many times ceasefires agreed to by Russia that turn out to not be ceasefires, and they are bombing people as they're trying to escape the country, and that it's just hard to say that Russia really has any ground to stand on at this point in terms of being believed. Yeah, I think you're you're quite right to be skeptical of Russia's recent pronouncements of dramatically scaling back military activity because we've heard them say they're going to lay off before and then they do the opposite. I think, though, what's different here is that analysts, including top officials in the Pentagon, are seeing this shifting situation on the ground with respect to Kyiv, the capital, and are now appearing to confirm reports that Russian forces in the region are pulling back. Now, if that's the case, if they are genuinely pulling back and moving to the east, I don't think we should read that as kind of a head fake. I think that may be a legitimate change in the strategy that Russia is pursuing here. Um, because why would you take away those forces that are already having such a hard time if you what you if you know only just send them back again? But if Ukraine is effectively saying we can't take Kyiv, let's refocus here on the east, that tells you a lot about their negotiating position, that the capitulation of the Zelensky government is not something that they're really in a position to demand because they can't bring it about by force. It also feels like a lot of these negotiations are centered on essentially the the idea of time, right? That Russia, the more time goes on, they are losing more people. The cost is getting greater and greater for them. But also for Ukrainians, you know, that same cost is there, that the longer this goes, the more their country is wrecked. And I'm wondering, like, at this point, how long can Ukraine hold out? And how much of these bombings had an effect on their military, their infrastructure, their country, and their ability to withstand this invasion? Well, I think Ukraine could hold out for some time longer. If you're in Mariupol, the situation is far more desperate than it might be in Kyiv, which is, you know, sustained relatively less damage than we've seen in that other city. There's also a question of military supplies. The Ukrainians have made great use of these Javelin shoulder-fired missiles to destroy Russian tanks. That's not a bottomless supply. And, you know, the West can only make so many missiles in a year. But the will to fight, that appears not to be waning. The will of the Ukrainians to fight is as strong as it has been since the beginning of the war. And when I've talked recently to a senior Ukrainian government official, I have been struck by the more than just optimistic tone that this person has been striking with me. This person has been saying, I think we're going to win. 
Hmm. He feels deeply that victory is at hand. Now, what does victory look like? I don't know that it looks like the complete repelling of Russian forces. Every force, every Russian troop leaves Ukraine and Vladimir Putin gets nothing. And President Zelensky has given interviews over the weekend where you can tell that he acknowledges there's going to have to be some political sacrifice. Ukraine's going to have to give something up. It's not clear yet what it is. But abdication of large parts of their territory, Russian occupation of more than just the eastern provinces, that seems off the table right now, at least from a negotiating standpoint. And I'm not sure that Russia at this point really has the military capability to demand much more. It seems they certainly don't have what it takes to take over the entirety of Ukraine. Hmm. What do you think could affect the course of these negotiations going forward? I think some of it will depend on, you know, U.S. support for it, although I must say the Biden administration has made great pains to kind of stay back from the negotiations Mm. and not dictate the terms. I think that really what this is going to come down to is Vladimir Putin deciding what he's willing to live with. He is going to have to decide whether or not he can justify to himself and to the Russian people the cost of this campaign so far. He may be able to sell this as a win, but time is not on his side in that regard. To come back to your uh, question about time, the longer this goes on, the more troops die, the longer the distinctions stay in place, the tougher it is going to be for him to sell that. There's one other factor here we haven't talked about, which is Russia and Ukraine can come to an agreement. They can come to a negotiated settlement. There still remains a big question of what the United States and its allies in Europe are going to do about sanctions if Vladimir Mm. Putin stays the president of Russia. You know, President Biden has called him a war criminal. The single most important thing that uh, we can do from the outset is keep the democracies united in our opposition and our effort to curtail the devastation that is occurring at the hands of a man who quite frankly, think is a war criminal. And and I think it will meet the legal definition of that as well. Is the United States prepared to lift some of these crippling sanctions? Is it prepared to basically back up the Ukrainian negotiations? Because I have a feeling that while Russia is negotiating with Ukraine, if Moscow doesn't say it explicitly, I think one of the implicit parts of this negotiation is going to be What about those sanctions? Vladimir Putin is going to want to see sanctions relief if he is going to give up on his dream of, you know, destroying Ukraine and capturing its government. That's interesting. Like if there's a world where Russian delegates are saying, look, we will leave most of Ukraine alone. We will stop bombing all these cities. We will let people get back to their lives as normal as long as you don't join NATO and then also lift all these sanctions. And the rest of the world is kind of in this position of, We want Ukrainians to be safe. We want to be able to help this country end this war. And at the same time, like, we're still trying to stick it to Putin. And are we willing to give up all this tough talk about how we're going to punish Putin and end our relationship with any of its oil and its financial institutions if the future of Ukraine is at stake? Yeah, that's right. And it's going to be a very tough pill then for the West and for the United States to swallow. Because look, Everyone wants to see Ukraine at peace. I mean, they want the killing to stop. But no one in the United States or in power in the West believes that things can go back to the way they are. 
Vladimir Putin has demonstrated that he is willing to invade another country that was not threatening him, kill thousands of people, including civilians. He has upended the security architecture of Europe that has maintained a peace for the past 80 years. I mean, the Cold War notwithstanding with the Soviet Union, we are back to something that looks like a Cold War. But you have a hostile Russia menacing countries on its borders and still potentially posing a threat to NATO allies. As poorly as the Russian military has performed, it can still attack. It can still draw NATO members into conflict. And even if Putin pulls his forces out of Ukraine and a peace prevails, no one is going to regard Putin and Russia as a peaceful neighbor ever again. Shane, do you think that it is too early for us to be hopeful that this war is close to an end? I don't think it's too early to be hopeful. I think we should always be hopeful. And there are good reasons to think that the war will end and you can see a way out for Russia and an accommodation for both sides. But I must say that I think we need to wait to see whether Russia follows up its words with actions. And peace negotiations can take a long time. There can be a notion of what a just peace or an equitable peace looks like. Then there's the actual implementation and the guarantees that come with it. But we are at a point where both sides, Russia and Ukraine, appear to be putting something on the table that's tangible. And that's a start. And that's something to be glad for. Shane, thank you so much. Thank you. Shane Harris covers national security and intelligence for The Post. That's it for Post Reports. Thanks for listening. Today's show was produced by Emma Telkoff and mixed by Sean Carter. It was edited by Ariel Plotnick. I'm Martine Powers. We'll be back tomorrow with more stories from The Washington Post.